know the one thing we did right was the day we started to fight. Keep your eyes on the prize. of this century, America was segregated. It was our social system, our way of keeping blacks and whites apart. By custom and by law, most blacks were servants, laborers, tenant farmers, went to separate poorer schools, lived in separate poorer housing. Segregation was the context for black lives throughout the country but especially in the South, a complete environment, socially and psychologically. Listen, for a long time, I had the idea that a man with white skin was superior because it appeared to me that he had everything. And I figured if God uh, would justify the white man having everything, that God had put him in a position to be the best. If you're born into a system that's wrong, whether it's a slave system or whether it's a segregated system, you take it for granted. And uh, I was born into a system that was segregated and uh, denied blacks the right to vote, also denied women the right to vote. And uh, I took it for granted. Nobody told me any different. Nobody said it was uh, strange or unusual or wasn't like other states. Segregation had its rules, and Southern blacks knew that if they didn't obey them, if they didn't step aside to let a white man pass, or if a black man looked too closely at a white woman, the system could be enforced by violence. Groups like the Ku Klux Klan used terrorism to uphold white supremacy and were an ever-present symbol of intimidation. You are not going to permit the NAACP to control your state. The war. April 1956, the boycott was four months old. In other states, lawsuits and black pressure were breaking down bus segregation, but not in Alabama. We expect the city bus lines of Montgomery and the people of Montgomery to continue to obey all segregation laws as written. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we gather to remember and celebrate the life and legacies of two civil rights giants, two who chose to use their lives to perfect democracy in America with heavy hearts and so many reasons to celebrate. We remember and honor the lives of Reverend C.T. Vivian and U.S. Congressman John Robert Lewis. Civil rights icons, pioneers, soldiers, warriors, and leaders. They heard the call. They walked into the terror and changed the world. I'm Janice Graham. Thank you for being with us. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. When we come to it, we must confess that we are the possible. 
we are the miraculous, the true wonder of this world. That is when, and only when, we come to it. America's chickens! Coming home! Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. And now, Janice Graham. And good evening, and thank you very, very much for being here with us at Our Common Ground. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we are making tribute and commemorating the lives and the legacy of the civil rights pioneers and warriors, Reverend C.T. Vivian and U.S. Congressman John Robert Lewis. They were the perfectors of the democracy, and we gather because giants have fallen. Thank you so much for being with us. If you'd like to join our uh, live studio uh, with chat, you can do so by coming to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. Or you can continue to listen through live streaming on our site at um, our common ground at blogtalkradio.com or we have a number of platforms where we fall. We come with, well, I come with um, a very heavy heart and into this program. Both Reverend Vivian and Congressman Lewis had such a tremendous impact on the path that my life took. And we're asking you to share with us tonight your understanding, your remembrances and memories of the work of these two civil rights giants. Our number is 347 838 9852. In the course of the program tonight, I'll be playing some bio information and and cementing and trying to take their voices to cement 
the spirit and the core of what they contributed to this democracy. And I always think about, and I'm not sure uh, if everyone shares this, but and, and we cannot forget the context in which these men did their work, the context in which they formed hard knock living as black people in this across this country into a movement that we know as a civil rights movement by creating an era of struggle, a platform, a context, a structure in which we can have in which the civil rights era and the movement inside of it and the outcomes, I think sometimes we tend, because we have been through so many, as uh, Dr. James Taylor um, reminded us some weeks ago, we have been through so many eras of struggle, freedom struggle, and civil rights struggles and human rights struggles as a citizen group in this country that we forget the outcomes of that third wave called the civil rights era, the era in which the country was embraced by fiery rhetoric, clarity in the analysis of Jim Crow and discriminatory and oppressive policies. And the time for which the struggle took place, the time frame was very important. The civil rights struggle started in the late, the civil rights era, in the late, in the the end of the late 40s, all the way into 1970. That's the time frame. And the gentlemen that we come to honor tonight were people who lived both as children and as leaders in that era. So their evolution in the work that they did is very important. And when we think about it, Reverend C.T. Vivian, when he died at age 95 on Thursday, no, on Friday, he was the senior officer the senior officer of the same organization that created the momentum of the civil rights movement in 19 in the in the in the ni- in 1961 the SCLC and then we reflect 
it's really interesting that both of these men, these giants, these men who made a decision in their leadership to address the imperfection of our democracy, of the U.S. democracy, meaning the imperfection, not only of the absence of civil rights for black people in this country, but the absence of policies which addressed a subculture of policy, which was perpetrated by white supremacist organizations all over the country. And that is why we are honoring them tonight by calling them perfectors of the democracy. They were captains in organizations that continue to exist. There is no doubt that for the first 10 terms that I knew both of those gentlemen, they were, uh, their ideology, the way that they operated, uh, was part of my very early formation as an activist in this country. I know the one thing we did right was the day we started to fight. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on, hold on. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on. Thank you for being patient with us here tonight. We're having a problem in our chat room, and our chatters have had to move to listening in a different way. You can call in at 347-838-9852 to join our tribute to Reverend C.T. Vivian and U.S. Congressman John Robert Lewis. He was very, very adamant. Uh, when you asked when he introduced himself, he always introduced himself as uh, John Robert, and uh, I always had had a little tickle. But I've, I have a very heavy heart tonight, uh, a heart about the loss of these giants, and wondering whether or not we learned enough from them. But there is no doubt in my mind after spending many, the entire adulthood of my life as an activist that there is embedded in the struggle for freedom and justice for black people a golden thread that was woven by John Roberts Lewis and C.T. Vivian. And everybody did call him C.T. I called him Reverend C.T. I took uh, a number of his classes and heard him preach. And uh, in the early days, in the late, in the early 70s, um, was present in organizing meetings with him when I chaired the National Coalition for um, Campaign for Tomorrow. 
the Ron Daniels referendum uh, campaign for President of the United States, I had the honor of spending many hours with Reverend C.T. Vivian. And many people outside of my generation don't have a real understanding. So tonight on Our Common Ground, and we're going to be doing some other things during the week, not uh, live call-in shows, but we're, we're going to be playing all week the full six parts of Eye on the Prize. Because in my discussions with young people, uh, our younger people, and my discussions with even some of my comrades, Uh, we're discovering that people really don't understand the context in which the civil rights movement that started in the late 40s and did not culminate until the mid-70s. That's right. Because the black power movement and the global pan-African human rights movement coincided in the 70s with the civil rights movement that was still um, underway. And we're we're finding and I'm finding that people don't understand the context. Um, This morning, um, after a lot of of calls with a lot of my comrades from SNCC and, and other organizations, uh, especially around uh, around the passing of these two giants. And I came away wondering, what do you do when giants fall, when they are no more there, when they don't walk the earth anymore, people who can fall back? I mean, as early as March, uh, Representative uh, Lewis went to the 55th anniversary of uh, Bloody Sunday. Now, I was too young for Bloody Sunday when it occurred, but the first time I attended it was on the 10th anniversary, and he was the speaker at that time. And we can talk about whether the bridge should be Edwin Pettus Bridge should be named for him. Lots of people are talking about that. I have an opinion about it. Um, But there is no doubt that the way in which these two men perfected, perfected our thinking about what democracy and justice and freedom must be, that they are forever embedded in the struggle for civil and human rights in this country and a government that makes it real. We'll take your calls at 347-838-9852 right after we do some filling in of the gaps. That's what I want to do. I, I mean, I grew up in the South. Um, and I understood exactly what was happening. I was 13 years old when I attended the 
I was 13 years old. Don't don't try to change the subject, Alphon. I was 13 years old when I attended the March on Washington and heard a young John Lewis speak. I was 14 years old when I met him for the second time, and I was a delegate to uh, the Quadrennial Convention of the AME Church in St. Louis, and he was a youth speaker at that convention, and I knew who he was, and um, I knew exactly who he was. And at 14, had a lot of conversations about whether I wanted to be a minister or whether I wanted to be a lawyer or what I was going to do with my life. And he signed my autograph book. I I tell that story on this program uh, a lot. So let's get into setting the foundation for how we remember uh, these giants. The Reverend C.T. Vivian, minister, author, revolutionary, a champion of the American Civil Rights Movement. If we're wrong, why don't you arrest us? A man willing to die for freedom. Dr. Vivian, an early practitioner of nonviolent direct action strategies, first participated in sit-ins to help desegregate lunch counters in 1947 Peoria, Illinois. Steadfast in his mission to register black people to vote, Dr. Vivian made international news in 1965 when he confronted Dallas County Sheriff Jim Clark on the courthouse steps in Selma, Alabama. This is a national problem. You can't keep anyone in the United States from voting without hurting the rights of all other citizens. Democracy's built on this. From his roots as a Nashville community leader, his appointment by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., as National Director of Affiliates of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. His participation in one of the first Freedom Rides, which led to his imprisonment at Parchman State Prison Farm, to his near-death experience as a weighed-in activist in St. Augustine, Florida, Dr. Vivian's commitment to the cause never wavered. Movement meant that finally we were encountering on a mass scale the evil that had been destroying us on a mass scale. You do not walk away from that, you continue to answer it. A seminal figure in the fight for racial equality, Dr. Vivian has created a bridge from the civil rights era to present day. He continues his work battling racism, poverty, and violence as president of the SCLC. And in 2008, he founded the C.T. Vivian Leadership Institute, dedicated to building a national framework for revitalizing underserved communities and inspiring the next generation to lead. Today at 88, Dr. Vivian remains an undeniable force for change in the civil rights movement. Oh, I got eyes in the back of my head Just in case I had to run I do what I can when I can while I can for my people While the clouds roll back and the stars fill the night That's when I'm gonna stand up, take my Clearly, uh, Dr. C.T. Vivian 
Reverend Dr. C.T. Vivian was a civil rights veteran who worked um, hard and long. He worked alongside Reverend Martin Luther King and later became the the head of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Uh, He died in his home in Atlanta of natural causes on Friday morning. And uh, his civil rights work stretches back more than six decades. Um, In his autobiography, he indicates that his first sit-in was in 1940s in Peoria, Illinois, and he met Dr. King in 1955. Um, He was honored by President Barack Obama, Uh, and given the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2013. And his ministry, as a minister, he advocated for justice and equality in every sermon that he ever gave. And, 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 And I think that he was the kind of person who felt that is the kind strategies to make sure that messages were amplified is the kind of movement to have our voices really heard and it didn't happen by accident the the captains and the warriors of the civil rights movement made certain it happened he was a, a theology student at American Baptist College in Nashville And under Dr. King's leadership at SCLC, he was the national director of affiliates. He traveled all around the South to register voters and to set up affiliate organizations for SCLC. Uh, In 1965, in Selma, he was met on the Dallas court county courthouse by Jim Clark, the sheriff, the infamous sheriff, the infamous Jim Clark, uh, who listened to uh, Reverend Vivian arguing about voting rights. And once he was finished, he just simply punched him in the mouth. That is the kind of, um, the kind of context in which these two men stepped into when they said that they would be warriors in the terror. That is the the backdrop for which all black Americans at the time feared for activist life. Uh, We have had with us on this program, uh, many of the veterans of SNCC and SCLC. And it was very much an American apartheid. Thank you, Monty, OCG. So my, my goal here tonight is to, is to really help you capture what they both both of these men gave and what they were willing to sacrifice 
for it. Here's Dr. Reverend C.T. Vivian talking about what he hoped for this country. is the moment we've waited for. When I say we've waited for, I'm talking about humankind has waited for. I'm talking about all the great philosophers and thinkers uh, uh, have waited for this moment. It's we have lived like we have lived, blowing each other up, killing each other, uh, uh, stealing from each other, making a world that is not fit for human beings. We have lived that way because it's been allowed to be. Violence cannot solve human problems. We can't live in an atomic world and think like we used to think in terms of how wars were fought, in terms of how men killed each other. Because today... If we decide to live like we lived yesterday, none of us will live at all. War cannot be used anymore because you can't create the beloved community on yesterday's understandings. It's up to us to create the world we really want. We have to say it. We have to sing it. Uh, we have to do it because that's the only way we can really find out what the world will be like. The world we want to create, our generations that have come before us have desired it. We're the first that can really have it. We're the first that can make it a reality. We've lived and waited for you to come along and because the conditions are right for you to win. And I love the idea that he was saying he was reaching he was reaching he was reaching for a new generation to take the the baton. I, I really liked that idea that he was willing um that was in one of his forums, um re- willing to teach to teach activism, organizing, um, and and most of his work in his in the later years, especially around 2013, 2000 to 2016, had to do with, as he would say, building the spirit of struggle in a new generation. Um, so I just. Um, think that we have to think about the sacrifices that 
these two people need in their lives. I mean, at one time, John Lewis particularly um, uh, was uh, losing his marriage and um, and 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 continuing on despite his being in Washington D.C. and needing to be there full time, but his family is still in Atlanta. We're going to talk about his bio. And I have always been amazed that in nine, at the speech that I heard when I was 13 years old that John Lewis gave um, a lot of people. All it seemed to me that most people walked away uh, with Dr. King's "I Have a Dream" speech, but at 13, I walked away from this young man who was fiery. He was ready for the world, and he and and his speech formed such a model in my brain uh, about what was necessary and what we had to do as black people. Our number is three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two. If you would like to share with us uh, your notion of what the the these fallen giants um, have meant to you as you consider. Um, you know, and, and one of the things that, that made my, my heart so heavy was that they both died in a period where democracy in this country was gone. And their work had been built on a weak and faulty democracy but it was a dem- a platform that you could build from for black people's struggle. And to see all of their work, um, all of their sense of progress uh, being dismantled uh, by this current sitting fat neo-fascist president who at this point is... Um, um, reinstalling uh, uh, an American fascism and glossing it over with rich capitalists who could care less about the people that C.T. Vivian and um, um, Representative Lewis represented like to hear from you, like to hear what you are thinking. Um, one of the people that um, one of the people that I called today to check in with was our sister, our common ground voice, uh, Dr. Ruby Sales, and she was on vacation and has been away all week. Uh, getting ready to go back home tomorrow. But I was concerned about her because she was particularly close uh, to uh, Representative Lewis and to um, Reverend Vivian. And she was a SNCC freedom rider under their leadership. And they have kept a very, very close um friendship and relationship and um 
one of the things that she reminded me in our discussion this morning uh, was that uh, both of these men treasured the franchise, the franchise of voting. And uh, they kept that on the mantle for black people for many, many years. Um, So let's take a look at uh, John Lewis's life and come back and take your calls. My philosophy is very simple. When you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, that's something. Do something. Get in trouble. Good trouble. Necessary trouble. He was always different than every member of Congress. Everybody knew what he had done. He was John Lewis. We're marching today to dramatize to the world that hundreds and thousands of Negro citizens denied the right to vote. Congressman Lewis gave us the blueprint to organize and to legislate. The reason why he's effective as a leader is because he's lived it. We made a decision to march in an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent fashion from Selma to Montgomery. You are ordered to disperse that march will not continue. I was hit in the head. My knees went from under me. I thought I was going to down the bridge. If John Lewis, as a 19, 20-year-old, wasn't doing what he did, I would not be here. We will march with the spirit of love and with the spirit of dignity that we have shown here today. The whole time he was in the movement, it was frightening, knowing the danger, knowing what could happen. You cannot replace a John Lewis. He's the most courageous person I ever met. Too many people struggled and died to make it possible for every American to exercise their right to vote. He challenges the conscience of the Congress. Bring common sense gun control legislation to the House floor. Forty years later, John Lewis continues to inspire us. Are you with me? Let me hear you. Workers that were murdered for trying to help people get registered to vote are looking down on us. This is a time for action. That's what I learned from John Lewis. Their forces in America today want to take us back, but we're not going back. We're going forward. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Let's take a look at the life of um, John Lewis a little bit closer. For those of you who were not old enough to understand the import of what these men were doing, these men and women, the Montgomery um, boycott uh, was the first revolutionary movement in this country since the American Revolutionary War, since the Civil, Civil Rights War. And John Lewis was one of the big six civil rights leaders. Uh, 
um, to help a Dr. King and help organize the historic 1963 March on Washington. And by the way, we forget that the March on Washington was for jobs and freedom. They weren't just talking about feeling good about don't like the black people, don't like the colored people, don't like the Negroes, keep them down. They were talking about jobs and economic inequities at the 1963 March on Washington. Um, So this civil rights icon, a man who fought for equality until his last breath, um, you know, it's a phenomenon in the history of country of of governments organized in the world that's what i think we have to understand that the civil rights movement didn't ha- it wasn't just a meeting or going to a meeting or a march it was a war against apartheid and oppression in this country with demands for some specific changes that had to do with the disenfranchisement and the marginalization and the discrimination against black people about jobs and housing and financial and and predatory lending. They were talking about all of that in in the um in the civil rights movement you know and then there were there were breakoffs um and then the younger generation was Marion Barry and Harold Washington and um and Jesse Jackson a Jesse Jackson who was a kid helping to organize the March on Washington. Essentially he was a kid to these to the to the six. Um Ralph Abernathy and Edgar Mevers Edgar Mevers Evers. <laughs> oh God. Um you know and 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 these were men over the last 20 years, these two men, I imagine that every day they had to rethink what more can I do as a result of their commitment? What more can I contribute? How can I leave my legacy? The How can I put Taylor the end of my legacy. Uh, I could, I mean, I I watched with tears in my eyes when Representative John Lewis, week before last, just week before last, he was. He, I mean, when he announced last year he had pancreatic cancer, it was stage four. 
pancreatic cancer is a very painful cancer. The treatment is a very toxic treatment. But he continued to do his work. He continued to try and hang in there. And just two, three weeks ago, he was standing on Black Lives Matters Plaza. And when I saw that, because when I saw that, just the tears just started rolling. My my heart ached for him that at the twilight of his life, after giving everything that he had, and you all know that I have been, I'm, I'm never, I can't say that critical, I have been considerate in how much longer he would be in the seat, the Georgia seat as a representative in Congress, that I thought that uh, it was time for him to become a a senior elder consultant uh, to do his work outside of the legislative theater. And that didn't mean that I was thinking that he should go away. But legislating and being a a representative is very difficult. That's a that's a hard job because you're it's like being it's like being in a box. And you can't you have a uh say say you have some uh, a plate of a salad or something to eat and you're in this box, but you can't lift your you don't have enough room to lift your elbows. That's how I think about it. That's a way of thinking about it, I guess. You you can't lift your elbows in order to partake of what is on the plate in your hand. Or a box where uh, if you move too far to the left or move too far for, to the right or move too, too much forward or too too much back, you're hitting the wall. That's what it's like to be a U.S. congressperson if you care about what you're doing there. And and unfortunately, there are just too many who don't care about what they're doing there. And for all of the things that I think, I have to say that John Lewis never lost the spirit of freedom and justice in a new kind of governing environment i did think his strategies his ta- tactical moves were not very successful although many of you do not know that it was john lewis who legislated, who led the bill to get the money, the first monies to fund the National Afro-American Museum at the Smithsonian. That was John Lewis. And he tried that for 10 years until the money came. 
so um and and his agenda was consistent around voting uh voting rights um many of you probably did not hear me when I described for you the idea that um when the Voting Rights Act, when portions of the Voting Rights Act, especially the protective uh, portions by the Supreme Court, <coughs> excuse me, I, 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 it was John Lewis who I worried about. I, I did. I was watching him, and I was still in government service, and I worried about whether or not he was going to stroke out trying to rectify. Our number is 347-838-9852. You know when you call in and you want to talk, you have to dial 1 or something like that, and I can see that you want to talk to me rather than just listen. The number 347-838-9852. And I'm trying to create this foundation for us to rethink how these two gentlemen dedicated their lives and the environment in which they made their commitments as perfectors of this democracy. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to hear more from um, John Lewis about what he cared about. for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I want to know why I'm fine one minute and the next, my body aches so bad I can't move. I want to know why my hair is falling out. I'm only 17. I'm tired all the time. Now, this rash. I just want to know what's going on. When you don't have the right answers, it may be time to ask your doctor the right question. Could I have lupus? For answers, for support, for hope, visit couldihavelupus.gov or call 1-800-994-9662. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office on Women's Health and the Ad Council. How do you wake up the entire African-American community to the hidden issue of mental health? It showed up in my life through one of my best friends. And we've been friends for over 30 years. One story at a time. If we would have known earlier, you know, we would have been more, much more supportive with her. Once I reached out to my sister, it got a little better. Once I told my mother, it got a little better. The more I talked about it, 
I felt it coming off. The healing is in me, and the healing in a journey can also be extended to others. It's our community and our mental health. Giving voice to what you're feeling is part of the healing. If you're strong enough to just open your mouth, that's all it takes. And the most revolutionary and healing thing that black people can do right now is to love one another. It's time to share ourselves. Healing starts with us. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Ad Council, and the Stay Strong Foundation. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more. this president to do the right thing, not for one minute, not for one election, not for the sake of our country. You just can't. He will not change, and you know it. History will not be kind to Donald Trump. I think we all know that. Not because it will be written by never Trumpers, but because whenever we have departed from the values of our nation, we have come to regret it. And that regret is written all over the pages of our history. If you find that the House has proved its case, and still vote to acquit. Your name will be tied to his with a cord of steel and for all of history. He has betrayed our national security. He has compromised our elections and he will do so again. You will not change him. You cannot constrain him. Truth matters little to him. What's right matters even less. And decency matters not at all. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming Truth to Power. One broadcast at a time. And we thank you for being with us here tonight in our tribute and commemoration of Dr. Reverend C.T. Vivian and U.S. Congressman Representative of Georgia, John Robert Lewis. We're going to go to our phones, and our number is 347-838-9800. Seven five seven. You're on the air. Thank you for your call. Oh, how are you doing, Dennis? I just knew you'd end up covering this stuff. I I don't want to <laughs> sidetrack you, but I I was wondering, you know, as as uh, I'm up in age, I'll be sixty seven if I make it another two weeks. Uh, yeah, you, you my you you my my little brother. <laughs> oh my goodness. I would I would have never known I was a junior here, but you wear it well. Uh, what Thank I was you. thinking though, losing losing those two giants together, I'll I'll tell a quick tale without telling who it was, but I was really shocked because I grew up in the sixties or through the seventies, you know, and I, in a small country town. But I was literally talking to some college friends of mine. Uh, earlier today, and I brought up, you know, that losing Vivian and then John Lewis, and I said, I, I go back to what first popped in my mind when we lost Cummings, was I wonder, because you don't always know for sure in the public sphere what they've done, but I truly hope that they have mentored a large group of people to continue this, 
because one of the things I realized as I grow older, and I try to do it here in my small town, uh, regardless of where you are, you have to keep young people, the generation behind you, connected to the truth about your past. You shouldn't shield them from it. I'm hoping they mentor some people to carry it on. That's all. That's all. Well, well, I can assure you, and the li- and the you know our list is, uh, and I'm glad you. Um, uh, mentioned uh, Representative Elijah Cummings, but we also lost Reverend Lowry, and and these were men. I you know I I knew uh, Representative Cummings, and uh, I didn't know him until later in my life. But they were always men. C. T. Vivian and John Lewis were always men who felt that they had an obligation to mentor, to model, and to pass on the story. You know, people sometimes used to get kind of annoyed with um, with um, um, Congressman Lewis because he talked so much about Bloody Sunday and being with Dr. King and organizing early on. But part of that was he was passing on the stories so that people are connected and understand. I mean, when the, go ahead. As a country, as a country person, I just wanted to really uh, edify what you just said because I've gone to country. I literally had a debate with someone about three weeks ago, pretty much saying they were tired of hearing the story. And I said, you got to check yourself. It's not the story that's the problem. The problem is what you bring to the story. You assume he's bragging when, in fact, he's trying to pass along to a generation that doesn't know what the true brutality was. Stop telling me you don't want to hear the story. Look at the story a little differently. I'm with you on that. Yeah, because in those stories, you know, like when I was talking to Sister Ruby Sales this morning, we were talking about this whole notion of how being Southern was such a spectacular advantage to us as we grew up in activism because we understood what we are against. We grew up understanding and seeing the story in real life. I, and it I'm makes gonna, a difference. I'm going to tag this and then let other people in. Again, you got to talk a little louder. With, I'm having problems. Okay. I, okay. Can you hear me now? Uh, yeah, you're, you're kind of low, though. I was talking to some friends about a month ago, and I told them uh, the difference being in the South, because they said, well, people down south in Alabama need to do this and do that. I said, you know, most of you people live in the city. So you don't really understand that those people in the South, our South, like I'm from Yorktown, Virginia, uh, we live among the people that used to own us. And like you were saying, there's a sense that we have that you don't. So we don't look at things in theory. We look at it in practicality, what we've actually lived. I'm going to leave it there. I appreciate the show. Okay. Thank you so much and hope you'll join us next Saturday and as a a uh, reminder, we had planned uh, a program with Brandon Jones of the Jegna Institute tonight. And um, 
I had to contact him this morning because I couldn't let today go by without um, honoring um, Dr. Vivian and Congressman Lewis. So that program, uh, Mental Awareness, Black Survival at the Junction of Multigenerational Trauma, uh, will uh, be brought. Will be live with it next Saturday. And the Saturday after, Sister Ruby Sales and I will be talking again about uh, the outcomes of the civil rights movement and living, and living and growing up Southern in activism. Seven seven three, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. Good evening. Seven seven three. Y'all know 773 getting his ear ear things on, his earbuds. He loves those earbuds. You know what, no. I got, I got it on speakerphone. I wanted to mute my television. Um, you know, Janice, the honoring of these giants that have transitioned is of the utmost importance. I hear so many times that the people who were not of the South did not understand that the people in the South were amongst those who used to own them. We have, for the people in the North, we had a contempt for people in the South. And let me explain that. I went I took a trip down to Birmingham, Alabama in my youth. And the people down there didn't understand my anger, my approach to the white people who lived there. I was not friendly to them, and they didn't understand why, nor did I understand why they didn't understand. And it's always been a contentious relationship between people of the South and people from the North. We used to say, hold your head up. You ain't in the South no more. When in fact, here in the North, we were accosted by a different kind of cowardly racism that smiled in your face and said everything's all right while harboring this ill will against us. And the mere fact that the people in the North who held them in such contempt, and the people in the South, the wedge between us was religion. Because there were people in the North who simply did not fall in hand and foot with the religion. And I truly believe to this day, religion is what kept black people in line kept black people from seeing the obvious. 
And if we can continue to not see the obvious, we can continue to be misled, mistaught. And that's basically what is happening and what is happening. We have to conquer that. We have to get beyond that. That that that, that petty contention between the people who grew up in the north and the people who came from the south. And I truly well, believe that. I I I don't I I I you know, I think it had it reflected but not necessarily was a cause. Because one of the things that most people that I found, especially after I left the Deep South during just right after Jim Crow and and went to Boston, um, was that there was a, a, a lack of, you know, the black students that, the black students from the south and the black students who grew up in the northeast and the west coast and places where Jim Crow was not as hard didn't have the benefit of understanding the realities of white supremacy and how it worked. In the south, black people had a code. They spoke a code. They acted a code. And there was a there is another thing that we cannot dismiss, and that is, and I'm talking about my generation, my generation of black people in the South, because we went to segregated schools, we lived in segregated communities, we didn't live the seven days a week, twenty four hour of of the spirit of oppression because we were coveted from it in our churches in our in our own shops i mean when you think about tulsa and that we call it the 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 black wall street there were many black i grew up in a black Wall Street. We had our own dentists. We had our own physicians. We had our own drugstores. We had our own laundry facilities and theaters. And, and we were, as children, we were protected from the onslaught and the, and the, the destruction and damage of white people's oppression. So I, I agree with you somewhat, uh, Alpha, about the religion thing because the religion thing has its strings and everything else, you know. But um, I, I think it is it was reflected in behavior and not necessarily the cause of behavior. Because keep in mind that... Um, Unlike today in the South, black churches during Jim Crow 
in the 50s and 60s had a great deal of autonomy, were centers for social action and social justice. They were centers for trying to balance out the economic inequalities within the community. You could get loans from members of churches could get loans. So I I think, I mean, I grew up in a community that had, when I was little, had two black grocery stores. So uh, we were, we were, we were protected in a lot of ways, but we understood the realities because when I was growing up, it was the obligation of black parents to help black children understand the danger my friends coming from Jersey City and 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 Harlem and and Brooklyn, they didn't know anything about the dangers, and so they were constantly in in shock as they began to realize what was before them, uh, sitting before them. Alpha, thank you for your call. I really appreciate it, and um, we're going to continue as I said. Uh, earlier during this week, uh, our common ground will be sponsoring each night a portion of um, Eye on the Prize because I think it's really important for us not only to honor John Lewis and to honor C.T. Vivian, but understand the depth of the sacrifice and the danger in which they did their work. I mean, I was in Boston at uh, on the day that Martin Luther King was assassinated, and I was working for the first and only black city councilman in the city of Boston, who, by the way, was a Harvard Law School student when he ran for office and he won. And... Um, um, I'm talking about Tom Atkins, who is now deceased. But he was one of my major uh, mentors. And and the night that Martin Luther King was assassinated, uh, I was his gopher. I, I, I did anything he told me to do. But we were at the Boston, the old Boston Garden and... James Brown was scheduled for a concert that night, and the mayor had asked Tom um, to and two other uh, black um, nonprofit organization uh, executives to meet with him to decide whether the concert should go on. And, of course, you know the rest of the story. The concert did go on, and most of the black people in Boston did not um, – get into violent response uh, to the assassination of Martin Luther King because everybody was at the James Brown concert. But one of the things that occurred to me um, on that night was that most of my um, friends and students and activists, comrades, they did not understand the depth of the danger 
that civil rights workers were in, including their own. I mean, I, um, I, I, I was very aware of that. Um, one of the things I wanted to share with you um, this, uh, during this tribute is the fiery speech that moved me to make a decision when I was 13 years old that I was going to be part of it. Whatever I did in my life, I would have to be part of it. It would have to be my life. And on our trip back home, driving from Washington, D.C., my mother, who was a history major, and she knew everything about history, uh, began to talk about the many um, Martin Luther Kings who existed throughout the country, people that she had met uh, as a student um, uh, from high school because she had to go to high school at um, Florida A&M College because in Palm Beach County where she grew up, the um, public school only offered black students. This was my mother and my father. Only offered public school to the eighth grade. And once you got to the eighth grade, you were on your own. There was no high school for black children. Let that sink in. So um, my parents went to high school with other black children all around the South and some from the Northeast and and the Midwest. And so they knew everybody. And my mother could tell you the stories of black families who were financing and supporting the civil rights movement. In my house, every Wednesday, we got the Pittsburgh Courier by mail. Um, And John Johnson, who is the publisher, who was the publisher, now deceased, of Ebony Magazine, Johnson Publications, uh, was like four years behind my parents at Florida A&M college high school and you had to pay you just didn't go there you had to pay um and those people became the supporters the financiers of the work of SCLC and then when I was growing up I was always begging my parents for money for SNCC and for the Panther Party and everything else that I was involved in Our number is 347-838-9852 if you'd like to share your understanding of what it means when giants fall. A tribute to Dr. Reverend C.T. Vivian and U.S. Congressman John Robert Lewis. I have the pleasure to present to this great audience Young John Lewis, National Chairman, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Brother John Lewis. 
today for job and freedom. But we have nothing to be proud of, for hundreds and thousands of our brothers are not here, for they're receiving starvation wages or no wages at all. While we stand here, there are sharecroppers in the Delta of Mississippi who are out in the field working for less than $3 a day, 12 hours a day. While we stand here, there are students in jail on trumped-up charges. Our brother James Palmer, along with many others, is also in jail. We come here today with a great sense of misgiving. It is true that we support the administration's civil rights bill. We support it with great reservation, however. Unless, unless Tile 3 is put in this bill, there's nothing to protect the young children and old women who must face police jobs and fire hoses in the South while they engage in peaceful demonstrations. In its present form, this bill will not protect the citizen of Danville, Virginia, who must live in constant fear of a police state. It will not protect the hundreds and thousands of people who have been arrested upon Trump charges. What about the three young men, Snickfield's secretary in America's Georgia, who faced the death penalty for engaging in peaceful protest? As it stands now, the voting section of this bill will not help the thousands of black people who want to vote. It will not help the citizens of Mississippi, of Alabama, and Georgia who are qualified to vote but lack a sixth grade education. One man, one vote is an African crime. It is our tool. It must be ours. We must have legislation that will protect the Mississippi sharecropper, who has put off his form and cause the to register to vote. We need a bill that will provide for the homeless and starving people of this nation. We need a bill that will ensure the equality of a maid who earns $5 a week in a home of a family whose income is $100,000 a year. We must have a good FEPC bill. My friends, let us not forget that we are involved in a serious social revolution. A fine large American politics is dominated by politicians who build their career on immoral compromising and align themselves with open form of political, economic, and social exploitation. There are exceptions, of course. We salute those. But what political leader can stand up and say, my party is a party of principles? For the party of Kennedy is also the party of Eastland. The party of Javis is also the party of Goldwater. Where is our party? Where is the political party that will make it unnecessary to march on Washington? Where is the political party that will make it unnecessary to march in the streets of Birmingham? Where is the political party that will protect the citizens of Albany, Georgia? Do you know that in Albany, Georgia, nine of our leaders have been indicted, not by the Dixocrats, but by the federal government for peaceful protests. But what did the federal government do when Albany deputy sheriff beat Attorney C.B. King and left him half dead? What did the federal government do when local police officials kicked and assaulted the pregnant wife of Slater King and she lost her baby? 
Those who have said be patient and wait, we must say that we cannot be patient. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. We are tired. We are tired of being beaten by policemen. We are tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom and we want it now. We do not want to go to jail. But we will go to jail if this, this is a prize we must pay for love brotherhood and true peace. I appeal to all of you to get in this great revolution that is sweeping this nation. Get in and stay in the streets of every city, every village and hamlet of this nation until true freedom comes, until the revolution of 1776 is complete. We must get in this revolution and complete the revolution. For in the Delta of Mississippi, in Southwest Georgia, in the Black Belt of Alabama, in Harlem, in Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia, and all over this nation, the black masses are on the march for jobs and freedom. They're talking about slow down and stop. We will not stop. All of the forces of Eastland Barnett, Wallace, and Thurman will not stop this revolution. If we do not get meaningful legislation out of this Congress, the time will come when we will not confine our march into Washington. We will march through the South, through the streets of Jackson, through the streets of Danville, through the streets of Cambridge, through the streets of Birmingham. But we will march with the spirit of love and with the spirit of dignity that we have shown here today. By the forces of our demands, our determination, and our numbers, we shall splinter the segregated South into a thousand pieces and put them together in the image of God and democracy. We must say, wake up, America, wake up! For we cannot stop, and we will not and cannot be patient. And now back to Our Common Ground. You see, I love that speech. That was the fiery John Lewis. And uh, I'm going to go to your calls, but I do want to make a couple of points. Yes, I have my critiques of John Lewis. And I don't make many of them publicly. Uh, In the same way, I have my critiques of Barack Obama, and I don't make those public. But but I think Malcolm, Ella, Martin, and Fanny have already given him an earful, so who am I? The other point I want to make is if you listen to this speech carefully, he talks about poverty, the police state. He talks about revolution, and he talks about being woke. John Lewis was America's first to talk about being woke. 
he always said in 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 his comments in small groups and meetings um many things that um some generations of young black people think they made that they created it. We're talking about the same thing, 2020, to stay woke, to be woke. We're talking about revolution. John Lewis and C.T. Vivian were the revolutionaries of their times. And I'll tell you who will tell you that if he could. Fred Hampton, H. Rap Brown, Kwame Toure. They will tell you that, even though Kwame Toure... Uh, known as Stokely Carmichael, um, ousted, led the ouster of John Lewis from SNCC. Um, But that was internal politics. But he talked about revolution, and the people who organized the march, I was later to uh, to learn as I grew older and more mature as an activist and organizer, is that they they were very fearful of what John Lewis was going to say, and it was Dr. King who went to John Lewis to ask him to change some portions of his speech for the for the March on Washington. Nine one seven, you're on the air. Thank you for your call. Nine one seven. Oh, hi. Good, good hi, evening. Thank Michelle. you for joining us. Hey, Michelle, our administrative <laughs> producer. She rarely, rarely calls. So you got in the mic, Michelle. Go. You How said nine one seven. I was thinking I was calling from three four seven. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't call because my brain is not working at this time of night. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to respond to your question about uh, what it means when giants fall. And for me, it 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 really it means that we have to understand that that the struggle not only continues, the struggle is perennial. And you know, and I I wish that as a people we could wrap our arms around that. Um, you know, you you talked about how things were kind of quieting down in the 70s, and, um, you know, I was born at the tail end of 1959, so I was a little girl in the 60s, a teenager in the 70s, um, born into a civil rights family, Um, so I had that perspective, but I also am that generation that... um, was was really the some of the first beneficiaries of of all of that work that had been done in the 40s and the 50s mm-hmm. and the 60s mm-hmm. which included and, by the way I want to uh highlight your father uh, absolutely absolutely who was an AME preacher um so I want to fight with Alpha too uh, <laughs> on that point, who was a, who was an AME preacher who grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, so, 
But for my generation, you know, I think that not me because Michelle, of the Michelle, try to background. talk up a little bit more right into your microphone. Is this better? Yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah, not the, the you know, I grew up with a certain background, so I I understood what the struggle was. But what I saw with a lot of my peers was that they seemed to feel that the the battle was won, you know, and it was now time to reap the benefits. And so as as the struggle moved off of the streets, and people moved into the corporations and and all of that, um, things really died down. And so I'm here to say we we don't have time for that. We can't ever assume that the struggle is won because it is perennial. And each generation, you know, has its zeitgeist and has its challenge and so I would like to think that rather than John Lewis feeling like um, all of his work had gone for naught uh, as we move into this period of intense fascism, um, that I, I'm happy that he at least got to see the current protests that are going on and got Absolutely. to see the current mm-hmm. generation picking up the baton and understanding mm-hmm. that it's not over, and it's not ever going to be over. Mhm, mhm, mhm. You know, uh, I, I'm glad you made that point because what has occurred in the last two months in this country in regard to protests and demonstrations, the fearlessness of protesters, the deter, mm-hmm. the dogged determination of these protesters. That is the model that John Lewis yes. set up yes. in the yes. in, in the sixties. It was yes. the model. Um yes. you know, and, and I think people need to to reflect on that. Mm-hmm. Uh there are I was very, very uh, uh disappointed about the lack of respect uh, that started seeping in for the old guard of the civil rights movement. I was very disappointed about when that started to happen. But we have to understand that had it not been for John Lewis and C.T. Vivian and Martin Luther King and Ralph Abernathy and Edgar and Malcolm, um, who was never able to see his Pan-African organization, which was built on the model of the 50s, 60s um, organizing um, model um, set by SNCC and SCLC and um, the order of the um, uh, porters and 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 the people of the activists of that era mm-hmm. that we 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 would have not seen the fair housing act which ben ben carson has pretty much trashed and put on put in the freezer but it is there as right. us law we would not have seen title 7 
right. which prohibits specific kinds of discrimination in the structure yeah of the, of of in the legal structure of this country those were huge things huge yeah. things i mean there are young people who do not and i was talking to my granddaughter about it um about 2 months ago that realized that in the south in the deep south in florida Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina. It wasn't until the mid-70s that black citizens were informed that if they were suffering from poverty, they were eligible to get financial assistance from the government. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, yeah. I, I've been trying and to catch up on your global women's presentations, and I saw that you were doing uh, this bridge called My Back. Yeah. And it brings to mind, and what days do you do that? In one, Mondays? Tuesday. You going to come visit us this Tuesday? Uh, I think so. I have a interview I'm doing on Monday, and I'm – uh, <laughs> I I, I okay. do. I try to catch it on YouTube when I'm on yeah, well, Google. I want you to come whatever, hang out. Come, I want you to come hang out hang with out. us. I'll put yeah. you back in the group. Yeah. Oh, okay. But, you know, when but I, when I was I thinking when you were doing that of all the black women and men who acted in the 40s and 50s and 60s of. Uh, um, of uh, the domestic workers, the maids, the cooks, mm-hmm. the butlers, mm-hmm. and the chauffeurs, none of those people of that generation had the benefit of Social Security Administration insurance because right. their employers did not pay it for them because they were black. So right. when they got into the when they were eligible by age for Social Security, they didn't have an account. It was the civil rights movement that repaired that, that yeah. fixed that. Yeah. And and I so, also want to say, Janice, when when I hear the criticism, I you know I I I think young people need to try to understand that 2020, you know. Hindsight is twenty twenty, um, and it, it, you know we we like when you talk about the Black Wall Streets. Um, you know, I can I can put myself in a space of of seeing how integration looked like a good way to go. You know, not really comprehending at the time the devastation that it was going to have on our black Wall Streets. Yeah, but you can yeah. see that clearly in hindsight. In yeah, you can see it in education. So you can, yeah, you can see it in education. You can see it in socioeconomic yeah. uh, ways. You you can, you, you, you do, uh, yeah. that we were in sitting without the benefit of the resources of our government, self-sufficient. Yeah, Yeah. Um, and so you 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 want that. And when I put on my public administrator hat, I want to say, 
you know, we, I, I think that we have to constantly be in an assessment mode. That's what I mean by we can never, you know, decide that, okay, we've arrived at the mountaintop and now we can just, you know, all go smoke a joint and be happy. Um, that we have to constantly be assessing, okay, we made this step. We made this progress. Did it work? How yeah. did it feel about yeah. it? What tweaking yeah. do we need to yeah. do? We you know, also and it's need just, to, it's to assess the negotiation, what we get mm-hmm. and what we give. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I am just so, Michelle, you know I'm so disgusted by the pi- price we're going to have to pay and the absence of a playbook with having yeah. to follow the Democrats all over again. And and even yeah. in John... Hello, hello, hello. Hello, hello. Okay, uh, we had a little uh, blip right there. I was disconnected, and we lost Michelle. Uh, Michelle, did we lose you? Michelle, are you still there? Uh, I'm back. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, okay. There was a blip, and I yeah, was Yeah, I heard it. I heard yeah, it. Somehow yeah. we got disconnected, yeah. Yeah. So, so you were talking um, about I, the negotiations, I think, about dealing with Biden. Yeah, that that we have to be, we have to constantly assess what we're willing to give up and what we're willing to buy. With this um, uh, Joe Biden uh, presumed nomination for the Democratic Party against Donald Trump, I think we're at the pinnacle of our ability to begin to to negotiate with him, yet um, we are our, our biggest discussion is who's going to be the vice president, uh, his vice president nominee, and I think mm-hmm. that's important. But that's not the most important thing. Mm-hmm. We've mm-hmm. got the power right now, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I think the that there are some who need to see how we're going to spin the currency of our, of that power. You know, and, and, and the other thing, too, um, Michelle, is that we've got to go back to the idea. John Lewis talked about where is our party in that speech. That's why I played the whole thing. Mm-hmm. He was asking... He was saying Eastland is a part of the party of Kennedy, and that's a Democratic Party. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what he was saying is, where is our party? What right. bill is going to address the police state? We've right. got Bill Barr right now, the U.S. Attorney General who has organized a military, a national military police, and this president 
has sent them on the streets of America grabbing, without identification, grabbing people and arresting them because he promised his Trumpers he was going to arrest hundreds. So now right. they're out on the street gathering up the hundreds that he promised right. in, his racist, right. tro- in his racist trope. Right. We are in yeah, trouble. I, you know, and I, you know, there's certainly issues with Biden, um, but I'm I'm in that camp. You, I'm sure you've seen it on Facebook. If I have to crawl naked on my knees over hot glass, <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. I'm sitting here in a t-shirt that says, "I'm I'm sitting here in a t-shirt that says anybody but." <laughs> yes. Yes. So you know, and I, I mean, but again, it's the the thing is, me. we should have our party, but until we do that work in a sustained, consistent way, you know, we can't come up, Johnny, come lately at the last minute, uh, 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 wanting to force demands onto people because it doesn't work like that. Yeah, you know, it's it's yep. the sustained work, and we have to embrace that. You know, we have to embrace that because Trump will be gone. You know, I'm just, I, I, I'm just determined that that's the way it's going to be. He will be gone, but the Trump. Well, I, are I hope still all the people who are there. praying, people out there, are praying. But I'm yes. not so sure. I know, I but I we can't talk like that because <laughs> I'm just not so sure, and not because he, because he's going to get the necessary votes legitimately. Right. He's there illegitimately because he stole one election. Right. And we should not be so foolish as to think that he won't steal another election. Well, if he does, you know, I mean, I, I, I hate to see the country plunged into civil war yet again, but mm-hmm. uh, that could be that could be the, the switch. That could be, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. we're just at that point. You know, but yeah. one of the things, um, uh, you, you know, you're my junior. Everybody seems to be my junior lately. But one of the things that I've been thinking about, and I'm sure in the last years, uh, in the last year, 18 months, that Reverend Vivian and John Lewis thought about is, and I've been thinking about it a lot. I mean, real a lot. Do I have enough time to do what I can? Yeah. That's a big question. That's a real big question. I mean, yeah. I, I think about um, how much I was burning to be out in the streets. Yeah, I probably, I would, if yeah. I had been in Boston, I would have been out in the streets. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I think about um, what I spent the last three years working on, uh, the campaign for Rachel Rollins to become the sheriff of Suffolk County in, in Massachusetts. She's a wonderful, wonderful sister, bright as as brilliant a strategician as you can find. 
and mm-hmm. working for Ayanna Presley, who is the finest representative any black person would ever want to have. Mm-hmm. And 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 I'm wondering if we need to strike out and 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 do some of that so that we have the voices that can be strategic resources to what has to happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm just I'm just wondering, you know, I'm almost uh, having conversations with people and saying, um, let me in and and help to, mm-hmm. to do this. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. those are the things that are going to matter. We can, we can do all the other kind of stuff, but to have, I mean, you cannot play chess and if you don't have no pieces on the board. It's right. as simple as that. Michelle, yeah. you know I've got to go. On Wednesday night, we're going to continue uh, to talk about um, the civil rights era and what it has meant and uh, the civil rights icons, Dr. Reverend C.T. Vivian and U.S. Congressman John Robert Lewis, who I was just so honored to have been in their presence enough to know yeah. them and to love them. I mean, yeah. C.D. Vivian could smile like anybody you never heard, never saw. We got to go. Uh, don't okay, forget Wednesday night. night we'll be here. I will uh, post about the Eye on the Prize. So, uh, next week, Brandon Jones and Mental Wellness will be with us. Thank you for being with us. Well, what happened there made me very sad. I cried. I don't want to go back. I want to go forward. Want to continue to be part of an effort to make American one, where we lay down the burden of race, the burden of hate, and create one society, one people. We all live in the same house, the American house, the world house, and we must learn to live together as brothers and sisters, as Dr. King would put it, or we will perish as fools. When he spoke, he spoke to my heart and and to my soul. I love this man. He taught me how to stand up, to speak up and speak out and and not to be afraid. And I I felt that when he was assassinated, that something died in America and something died in all of us. And this country had not been on the right path since. Reverend C.T. Vivian and U.S. Congressman John Robert Lewis, now honored ancestors.
They were lions in our time. They are now embedded in the history of America and in the history of black people struggling to be free. May they rest in power and may the ancestors celebrate their transition and may we use them as a model to claim our liberation. Thank you for being with us tonight at Our Common Ground. We'll be looking for you next Saturday with Brandon Jones of the Jegna Institute talking mental wellness, black survival, the junction of multi-generational trauma. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Until true freedom comes, until...